If you please turn with me in your Bibles now to 2 Thessalonians, where we've continued in our series. And I would like to begin at verse 1, but our focus will be on verses 4 and 5. We've already touched to some degree on verse 4, but I want to bring this evening to you 4 and 5 as our text. But this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. There are many things in life that we can recognize are uncertain. For example, we don't know if we are going to be alive here on earth tomorrow. Really, we don't know if we will be alive in the very next second of time. And uh, we don't know what challenges may be coming our way. And you've probably used the expression from time to time, you never know. Um, I think we've all used that expression because experience has taught us that there are many uncertainties about what is going to happen in life, and we have learned that we need to be flexible. Well, the world without God has a hard time believing that really anything is certain. Many people are what we would call agnostics, a term that comes from the Greek and means basically without knowledge. Many people today are agnostics and As a part of that belief system, they say you really can't know anything with absolute certainty. They will say such and such is possible, but then they will immediately point out that you can't know for certain. They will say things like, well, there may be a God or there may not. Um, There may be an afterlife, but then again, maybe there's not. And they like to say to us as Christians at every turn, prove it. Prove there is a God. Prove the scriptures are true. Prove that there is a heaven. Prove that Jesus is the only way to get there. Prove that everybody should have to follow the Ten Commandments. And what they are really saying is that they want you to provide scientific evidence for spiritual matters, and that's really impossible to do. When you stop and think about it, it's not surprising that the world would be so unsure of all of these things. For when you throw out God, you really throw out the very foundation of knowledge and truth. When you reject God, really the world then can only exist by blind chance. If there's no God, then there's no purpose to life. There's no standard of right and wrong. If there's no God, we really cannot be sure about anything. Not really. And uh, people who believe like this don't like to be around people like Christians, like us who are on various points dogmatic about truth, about the existence of truth, and about certain truths. Uh, Many in the world say we should tolerate all kinds of different views, claiming that no one has the right, they will say, to say he has the truth. And yet at the same time, ironically, most of these people in the world will trust their five senses to tell them what they will say is truth. And in fact, that's the principle that's at the foundation of science today. And so the scientists can see it and touch it, it's real. And the opposite is also held to be true, that if you can't touch it, if you can't see it, if you can't experience it, 
then you can't know with certainty whether it is real or not. Contrary to the world we as Christians believe, there are many things that can be known to be absolutely true without the proofs of science. We recognize that there are some things we don't know, but that's simply because we don't know the mind of God. The fact is, God knows all things, and all things are real in connection with him. For he is the one, as the Bible says, who gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is the ultimate reality, and in creating a world, he made a reality separate from himself, and yet a creation that derives its reality from him. And so scripture tells us that it's his power that holds this world together. He is the one who makes the world function the way it does. He knows this creation with the perfect knowledge. He understands how everything fits together. But while we do not know all that God knows, we do know some things because he's revealed the truth to us in his word. And uh, we know the God of the Bible to the degree that he has revealed himself to us. We know that the Bible is his word, the only rule for faith and life. We know that there is a heaven and hell, and that only those who believe in Christ will be saved. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, Why or how do we believe these things? Well, we believe them by faith. We believe the things that God has revealed to us in his word by faith. This faith is not the kind of faith that the world talks about. They'll talk about faith, but they mean by faith blind faith. That is believing in things without proof. Faith is said to be about beliefs not based on logical proof or material evidence. And so to the world, when you talk about faith, you're talking about a shot in the dark. And to them, it's being confident about things that we really can't be sure about. And so faith to the world is pretending to be confident. But the faith that we have as believers is not like this. Remember the definition of faith as we find it in Hebrews 11, which is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's, abs- it's being absolutely certain of God and his truth, even if we can't examine it with our senses. And so with this biblical faith, we go through life confident and persuaded about the reality of God and his promises. We know that he is real. We know that he is at work saving his people. And what I want to bring to your attention this evening is how Paul expresses this confidence with respect to the believers in Thessalonica. He says there in verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command have taken as the theme for this evening's message the words that are found right there in verse 4 confidence in the lord and we want to consider this confidence in the lord under three points what why and how Uh, paul has been instructing the thessalonians and he is about to do so again in verses 6 and following the believers in thessalonica apparently need to change some of the things they are doing And Paul says he knows they will. Under the point what, um, specifically what they need to do, and we'll learn more about this in the verses to follow, what they need to do is they need to go back to work. One of the main topics that Paul addresses in this letter is the proper perspective on Christ's return. And the Thessalonian Christians were believing uh, the, the false doctrine that Christ was right at the door and that at any moment he would appear. And this caused several unbiblical reactions. 
First, they couldn't figure out why if Christ could appear at any moment, they were still there on earth, suffering persecution for their faith. And so they began wavering in their faith, not able to reconcile what was happening to them with the belief that Christ could return at any moment with power and glory and bring salvation to his church. With all of the persecution that was occurring to them, they began to wonder if Jesus really loved them, if Jesus was truly Lord. And second, they thought that since Christ's coming was imminent, surely heaven was just around the corner. They figured it would be at any moment. And that perspective negated all motivation to work. And so many had apparently quit their jobs and were waiting around for Christ to just take them home. But of course, in the meantime, they had to live, and so they were freeloading off of others. Paul therefore gives the command of verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And he tells them to stop being busybodies and to work in quietness and eat their own bread. And he gives himself, Silas, and Timothy as examples in how they worked so as not to be a burden to any of the Thessalonian Christians. And we'll deal with that some more in the coming verses. But this instruction, this commands, notice in verse 8, he, Paul, Paul has just said, in verse 4, that he has confidence that they are, are doing and will do the things that we command. And then verse 6, now we command you, brothers. So it's these commands that especially are coming that is what Paul is confident they will follow. He knows that whatever he tells them to do, they will do it. Um, literally in the Greek, we read that he, Silas, and Timothy are persuaded concerning the Christians that they will do what they are commanded to do. It's, it's a word that means persuaded. It means confident, as we find the translation here in the ESV. And we have, um, in the ESV it says, and we have confidence in the Lord, or they are persuaded in the Lord about these things, absolutely certain about these things. Well, how can Paul say this? Isn't Paul being too overconfident? After all, how does he know what they are going to do? And we might be tempted to think that Paul is maybe being prideful here or a little too all-knowing, or at the very least, he's putting too much confidence in man. Well, to understand what Paul is saying, you need to realize that Paul is not confident, particularly in the Christians of Thessalonica in and of themselves, but he is, as he says, and we need to notice the exact wording, confident in the Lord about them or concerning them. His confidence is first and foremost in the Lord and only in the Thessalonian Christians secondarily. It is true, yes, his confidence involves the people. He's confident that they are going to do the things he is commanding. But why is he confident? It's because he knows the Lord is at work in them. And he knows that God's word to them will therefore not return void. This ought to be a reminder to you of the fact that unlike us, God is always worthy of your complete trust. God never fails. He is utterly faithful. We, on the other hand, tend to be fickle and unstable. Just from your own experience, how much confidence can you really put in other people? How often have people failed to live up to your expectations? How often have people broken promises? How often have you broken promises to others? It's true there are people who are faithful, at least overall. But is there anybody who is always faithful in whom you can put absolute confidence 
Now, you certainly ought to be faithful to your commitments, whether we're talking about in marriage, to your family, to the church, especially to Jesus Christ. In fact, your commitment to Jesus Christ should be the motivating factor for meeting all of the other responsibilities that involve your commitments. Out of love for Christ, you should do your best to be faithful to God and others. And the result is that people should be able to put a certain level of confidence in you. And yet the fact is, without God at work in us, we would be unfaithful when it comes to keeping God's commandments. Spiritually speaking, without God at work in us, we would be utterly unworthy of any kind of confidence. The Bible is clear that apart from Christ, we can do nothing good. As vines, if we are severed from the branch, we have no life. Another way of saying the same thing is that that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Secondly, even as Christians, if God were to withdraw the work of his spirit in our hearts, we would be immediately turning back to our old ways of sin marked by unfaithfulness. That's how evil by nature we really are. But only as God graciously changes us and then sustains us do we keep his commandments. And so when Paul expresses confidence in the Thessalonian Christians, he's really expressing confidence in God's work in them. Um, he knows that they trust Christ with a living faith. And he's talked about that and the evidences for that, why he knows that. He knows, therefore, that they're going to listen to him when he brings them the word of God, because that is what spirit and dwelt people do. And yet he also knows that this is not going to be just some automatic thing. Paul's method of encouraging the Thessalonians here to further obedience is a rather interesting method. He is concerned, yes, about how they are living He wants them to change. As mentioned earlier, he wants them to get it straight, that Christ's return uh, should not be the means uh, of them, you know, setting aside their work. They need to get back to work. Um, There are different approaches that Paul could have taken to in his handling of this problem. There are different approaches that elders today, I'm referring to ruling elders, teaching elders, the sessions of churches, the different approaches that the leaders in the church today can take when they also see areas that need to change in the lives of God's people. And the choice of which approach to take depends upon one's view of God's people and upon how an elder views his role as elder. One approach would be to come down hard on the people of God and to talk to them and to treat them like unbelievers. It's easy for an elder to see sin and then to condemn God's sheep. And he begins in his own mind to question their salvation. And what can happen is that God's people pick up on that attitude and then begin to doubt their own salvation. And you can recognize that that could be very destructive to the church. The fact of the matter is that the only time that you as a professing Christian should question your salvation is if you do not repent of your sin. What I mean is that your sinning itself ought not by itself to cast doubt upon your salvation Christians sin, but Christians grieve over their sin because of the dishonor it brings to God. And so they turn from sin. They strive to do what is right. They want to change to the glory of God. And so it would be wrong for me as your pastor to doubt your salvation simply because of some sin in your life. It would be wrong for me to come to you because of that sin and to just automatically condemn you. For me to do that would be to fall into the sin of Moses who in the wilderness struck the rock in anger out of disgust with Israel whom he was convinced was utterly reprobate. The sin was that he failed to believe that God is always working to save his people. 
And God condemned Moses' attitude and was so disgusted with Moses' attitude that he refused to let Moses enter the promised land. Another related approach that an elder can take is to think that he is able to change people spiritually. An elder can fall into the trap of thinking that he can change people's thinking or that he can change how people live. Um, The truth of the matter is that I cannot save you, I cannot preserve you in the faith, I cannot make you obedient, but it's easy for an elder to think that perhaps he can do these things. That if things are said just the right way, or if he gets really tough with people, or if he repeats something over and over again, he may resort to all kinds of tactics and gimmicks to try and get his points across. In the midst of all of this, the approach that the apostle takes is the right approach. It's the biblical approach. Paul knows the people are not living like they should, but he expresses confidence that they will do what is right. And he tells them this. He tells them that he expects them to listen and obey. And I also, as your pastor, should believe that when you are instructed by the word of God, you're going to listen. I should in my own mind be persuaded that you will obey. Now, why? Is it because I'm confident in you? No, because I'm confident in the Lord, confident that God is at work through his word to build up his people. I have no reason for confidence if my confidence is only in you. I have no reason for confidence if I'm trusting in um, my so-called ability to persuade from the pulpit. But because of the union that you have by faith with Jesus Christ, there is great reason for confidence. I don't have to enter the pulpit nervous in my approach and attitude as if I have to make you listen and obey. It would also be unfitting for me to enter the pulpit thinking that what I say doesn't really matter because it's not going to change anybody anyway. No, I must enter the pulpit confident, confident in the Lord that when he speaks from his word, it does its work in the hearts of you, his people. And this confidence is grounded in the belief that God is at work. It's grounded in the belief that when God begins a work, he brings it to completion. The approach of Paul, the approach that I must bring, um, is to bring the word of God and let God use it. I must set forth clearly and forcefully what God requires of you, but at the same time knowing that only God can use it to change hearts. Not only that God can, but that he does. This is where the confidence comes in. Does God work by his Holy Spirit through his word or not? And we believe and confess with confidence, yes. And that is one reason why we must reject all gimmicks in worship, especially anything that would replace the preached word. It's also why I must preach only God's word. As long as I, can, as I preach God's word, I can be confident that God will work in you. So how is this confidence expressed concretely. I'm talking about in practical terms here in the text. Well, Paul, Silas, and Timothy expressed their confidence in the Lord's faithfulness by praying to him. We prayed in verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The content of Paul's prayer tells us that he knew that only God could make them obedient Only God could direct their hearts. This prayer is clearly an expression of dependence upon God. It's also a testimony of Paul, Silas's, and Timothy's belief that if the people would only know God better, the more obedient they would be. 
need to know God's love. They need to know the steadfastness or the endurance of Christ. It's also true in your own life. If you would be more faithful in your walk before God, you need to know God better. You need to know his attitude toward you as his people. That's why you need to continue to hear his word, which is a revelation of himself. And so to be more obedient, you don't need me or another church leader breathing down your neck. You don't simply need more arguments and persuasion and reminders from the pulpit urging you to obedience, but you need to know God as he has revealed himself. God has many different attributes or characteristics, and we might think that what is really going to inspire obedience from sinners is perhaps knowing God's attribute of justice, or maybe his righteousness or holiness. Sometimes we do need to be reminded of God's wrath and of his displeasure with sin. Sometimes we need a healthy dose of hellfire and brimstone preaching to remind us that God takes sin seriously. And yet, knowledge of God's anger against sin, it's not the only way, nor even the primary way, that God works obedience in his people. And that's not the approach that Paul takes here. He doesn't use scare tactics to force us into obedience. The fact of the matter is that as believers, we, we've had our sins forgiven. Uh, we no longer live in terror of God's justice. And the preaching of God's wrath is designed to warn the unconverted sinner of his need for Christ, as well as to show you as, the, as a converted sinner what you've been delivered from. What should motivate you to obedience is really a healthy fear of God flowing not out of terror, but out of knowing the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Paul prays that the Lord would direct the hearts of God's saints into the love of God that first of all to direct is literally to make straight in the sense of removing all obstacles out of the way and so Paul is praying that all hindrances would be removed that would prevent God's people from knowing God's love for them you must know clearly and without question that God loves you the devil we can we, we know one of the Thessalonian Christians have hearts filled with doubt about God's love. That's always what he wants for us as God's people. He wants us to have no assurance of salvation. That's what the devil wants for you. And why does the devil want that? Because he doesn't, um, well, he knows that there's nothing that's going to keep you obedient to God, like knowing his love for you. And the devil doesn't want people bringing glory to God through obedient living. It should be clear that from what I've already said, that the love of God of which Paul speaks here is not our love for God, but God's love for us. In fact, when we read in Scripture the phrase love of God, it's almost always God's love for us that is in view. You must know God loves you in Jesus Christ. You must know that God gave even his only begotten son to the cruel cross for your salvation. You must know that God's love is strong it is sovereign, it is unconditional, it never fails, it never wavers. And it's a love of grace that has reached down to you as an undeserving sinner and united you to Christ by faith, making you worthy of God's blessings. It's a love of mercy that has raised you out of death into, in, into eternal life. It's a love that deals kindly with you even when you sin because it's a redeeming love. God continually covers your sins with the sacrifice that he has himself provided in his son. And when that love is, is shed abroad in your hearts, 
And you know that great love wherein you were loved, even while you were still a sinner, you will love God in return. Really, you can't help it. It's the necessary consequence of knowing God's love for you in Christ. And of course, love is the essence of obedience. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And so the more you realize the depths of God's love, the more you will love God and the more obedient you will be. That's the way it works. That's why we need to have our hearts directed to God's love. Paul also asks secondarily that the Lord would direct their hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, Steadfastness, or depending on your translation, it might have the word patience or the word endurance. This is speaking of the ability to remain steadfast on a course no matter what opposition you face. And uh, Jesus is the perfect example of patience and how he stayed the course during his life on earth in terms of his commitment to his ministry. God's will was for him to suffer and die on the cross, and he ran that race with endurance. And he is our example in that. It's easy to grow weary of obeying God. It's easy to become sidetracked and distracted. The devil would rather you turn aside to the pursuit of worldly interests. He wants you, as I mentioned a moment ago, he wants you to doubt God's love especially as you face difficult times, but you must, like Christ, endure. You must never doubt God's love. You must trust him no matter what, never taking your eye off of the goal. Remember, God promises great rewards to those who persevere to the end. Christ never once doubted the love of God that blesses obedience. He looked ahead to the joys of heaven, to how we would share in his joy, That was part of it, Uh, glorifying his father. These are the things that enabled him to press on. And you must fix your eyes on Jesus and on the joy that he has promised to give you. And of course, the problem is we want the joy now, right? We don't like to wait. We want Christ to return. We want him to just bring it all to completion now. But God's timing is not our timing. And that's why you need this steadfastness. You need perseverance in the calling that God has given you. You are here to serve him even as you wait. While waiting, you must be like Jesus who did not resort to idleness or loafing, but it was always about his father's business. Now may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Consider God's love. Consider that love especially as it was revealed in the steadfastness of Christ, who endured all manner of suffering for your salvation. Believers, that is what will motivate you to obedience. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to obey you better out of a growing love for you. Lord, may it be that we would revel in your love And in the steadfastness of Christ, Lord, direct our hearts to these things, that we would never lose sight of them. And Father, help us to grow in our faith, that we would have absolute confidence in the truths of your word. Lord, you are worthy of our trust. The Bible is your truth. And uh, Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to by faith see 
that indeed what we have can be trusted absolutely. Father, may we increase in that faith. May we increase in our love for you as we reflect upon your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.